I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where our aim is to help all people worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We welcome all people here, here that are here in the studio church in, in Salt Lake, uh, people near and far, Australia, Spain, Sweden, Panguitch, Utah. Uh, grateful that you're all here with us. Uh, let's open up with uh, the phone lines. Uh, it's a new year. Try some new things. 801-590-8413. 801-590-8413. And let's start with a prayer. Father God, we uh, approach you and we seek you uh, to know you in truth. And we know that scripture uh, calls you love. So we pray that your love will abide in our hearts above all things. Paul says, Lord, that if we don't have love, we have nothing. We can have all knowledge. We can move mountains, all faith. But without love, we have nothing. So we pray we'll be guided by love. We will read, uh, contextually understand things, and that you'll be with us tonight. We're grateful for our volunteers and people who watch from all over the world. Pray for your spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, right into it. I want to open this year by sharing with you a couple stories Believe it or not, they are all related to our coming year's programs. Now, I want to begin with a story many of you are probably familiar with. If you're rock and roll fans, you're probably uh, familiar with this story about Van Halen and their uh, outstanding demands when touring. When a band uh, tours, typically, they send along what is called a rider. And a rider uh, is a list of demands that the band requires upon reaching their venue or their arena or wherever they're gonna be playing. So these writers are these written demands that bind the venue promoter to certain promises that the band wants them to do before they take to the stage or whatever, arrive. In Van Halen's case, they had a lot of them uh, and for good reason. These guys, they put on quite a, a rock show and uh, to put on a good rock show, there was a lot of very intricate and detailed things that involved lighting and sound and staging and proper connections, proper uh, braces to make sure that things didn't fall from the sky and kill them or kill their fans. And so as a result, Van Halen's rider was 
50 to 60 pages long of bullet points. I mean, it was like a legal document for, for a tax code. And amidst these demands, of course, there were things they requested for food and beverage items. Lots of fresh and very tasty, good food was requested. Now, from the Christian perspective, we might automatically look at this and these requests and say, oh, this is the excessive lifestyle of some of the rich and indulgent. And I'm sure that was true, especially as Van Halen got more and more popular. They probably uh, enhanced that writer. But we also have to remember that the character of many promoters and that they would probably scrimp on every corner. And if they didn't get it in writing, uh, Van Halen might show up to a fold-up table, a stale loaf of bread and warm bologna. And so they, and they've learned, you know, hey, these guys will scrimp everywhere. We, we want these things met. If we're going to come and you're, we're going to do this deal, this is what we want. Well, included in these items, buried deep in the midst of most of their writer contracts, was an unusual demand. We want M&Ms, but no brown ones. Remember hearing about that? Well, once this weird fact got out to the public and the news picked it up, there was all sorts of conjecture and ideas about why Van Halen didn't want brown M&Ms. Now, here's where it starts to tie into us. The Christian hypothecations were especially amusing uh, as people tried to tie the request of no brown M&Ms to Satan, the color of hell, because Van Halen didn't want to be reminded of where they were going as they ate the M&M's, so remove all dark-colored M&M's. And after all, Van Halen did sing a song called Running with the Devil, and so uh, they just, just had to get rid of anything that reminded them of whose employment they were in. Years later, David Lee Roth, the singer of Van Halen at one time, explained the purpose for this clause in the writer. Apparently, promoters are not the best when it comes to making sure that important requests are made from bands and they will cut corners. Sometimes they will get the writer and not even read them. Because Van Halen's technical and staging demands were so detailed and voluminous, Roth said they always ran the danger that their writer would never be read which would lead to all sorts of problems in their performance. So they buried really deep in the writer this clause, no brown M&Ms, and the first thing they would do when they got to the venue, would Roth would go into the food area and he would look at the bowl of M&Ms. And if there were brown M&Ms present, they knew they were in for a long check of all the things they needed to make sure that the show was gonna go off right. But if the brown M&Ms were absent, they were much more able to relax and prepare and warm up for the show that they were going to put up. Now, why bring this up on a show that speaks about religion and the Bible and Christianity? If we as a people in this day and age can take a single line of a rock and roll writer written in our day and age and we can sign assign to it all sorts of nonsensical ideas. Think about what we are likely to do when we read an ancient manuscript. And when we start reading the Bible and we come across things, we have no idea why it's there. And so our little minds will come up with all sorts of things as to what it's saying. That's the application to it. 
So do you see, do people see and believe what they want to see and believe? Do Mormons, when they read the Bible, see Mormonism? Do atheists, when they read the Bible, see atheism? Do Catholics see Catholicism and Baptists and Calvinists see what they want to see? You're damn right they do. We see what we want to see. If you're full of hate, you will see reasons to hate. If you're full of love, you'll see reasons to love. We're going to work on that this year as we go through our stuff. Second story or illustration. Imagine for a moment that we're watching a World Cup soccer match. And let's call it the championship match, okay? The score is one to one. There's three seconds left. And uh, uh, a penalty shot has been called. The goal is in the goalie, uh, in the goal, and the crowd is going bonkers. The ball is put on the line. The penalty shot kicker is there. He's looking at the goal, and there stands the goalie. You got the scene in your head. Lot of pressure on the kicker. Lot of pressure on the goalie. Now, studies have been done on penalty kicks. Did you know that? I didn't. I don't know anything about organized sports, but I learned this. Studies have been done, and here's the lowdown on the whole deal. When a grown man is going to kick a soccer ball with those very powerful legs, that ball is coming in fast, sometimes as fast as 80 miles an hour. The goal, of course, is much bigger than the spread of the arms and legs of the goalie. It extends out in each direction. And so prior to that ball being kicked milliseconds, that goalie is going to make a decision. He is going to either stand here He's going to dive to the left. He's going to dive to the right in anticipation and trying to guess where that penalty kicker is going to put the ball. The kicker, looking straight down into the goalie's eyes, can see open net on both sides and high corners that seem like the furthest distance from where he's standing. And, and so uh, penalty shot kickers have been trained, go for the high corners. I asked a, a very good soccer player at church on Sunday, hey, where do you kick for when you're shooting a penalty shot? High corners. That's what, automatically, he's a high school uh, soccer player. So they've studied pre-shot direction goalies will take. And they say that 56% of them will go to the left. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing these averages again, or these percentages. And 43% will go to the right before the ball is kicked. Just right before to time it so that they can block. How many times out of a hundred does the goalie stay put? Two times. Two percent of the time, that goalie will not move. You got that? So statistically speaking, the best shot is for the penalty kicker to shoot it right up the middle. Okay? Of course, if everyone started doing this in professional soccer, this would change the statistics and there would have to be, it wouldn't become the single most successful place to put the ball. But back to our World Cup scenario. The penalty kicker knows these statistics. If he wants to do what is best for his team, he will definitely kick the ball straight up the middle. Only two times out of 100 will the goalie remain there. His whole team is relying on him. The coach's job could be predicated on his success. Millions, thousands of fans are screaming, praying, clasping their hands, hoping he's successful. Guess what 
is the first priority in the kicker's mind. Is it his team? Is it winning? They're very competitive. Is it his coach's job? Is it the fans to please them? What does the guy do? They almost always shoot for the corners. Why? Self-interest is why. See, there's a chance that he will succeed in shooting for the corner and he will be a hero. That's possible. There's a chance he will choose wrongly and the goalie will block the corner shot. But at least he took the traditionally accepted shot that the crowd could understand if a good goalie was able to block that. You get it? But to kick it straight up the middle, right at where the goalie is, and perchance it be one of the two times out of the hundred that the goalie doesn't move, this would result in his utter shame, sheer embarrassment, and mockery from fans and peers for years to come. So instead of choosing what is best for the team, statistically, and what is best for his coach and his fans, he chooses what is best for his reputation. That's why they shoot for the corner. They're afraid. They're afraid of the shame that will come by going directly with the, most, the highest statistical shot that they can make in that situation. The point to our show here, our purposes, to illustrate how much pressure there is to please others, to avoid mockery, to look good when you're placed in a position of influence and responsibility. And if this pressure, type of pressure, can overcome a professional uber-competitive athlete on how to kick a ball, how much pressure do you think is on people who actually believe that they are the shepherds of individuals in leading them to heaven? Of men who stand before hundreds, even thousands, week in and week out, and are expected to deliver to them traditional information that will please the crowd. Even if the information is incorrect, they will go with that information so as not to offend. It's built into our nature. The command Jesus gave is to worship God in spirit and in truth. Truth, no matter what it is. The truth for the penalty kicker is to kick straight up the freaking middle. An action that in the best, is the best interest of everybody involved. And the truth for a pastor or religious leaders is to teach what is right. No matter the cost, no matter the tradition, no matter what people expect. To do and teach what is right. To teach what's contextual, what is true, what is loving. And to stand and spit against the wind when the wind is saying, no, 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 you got to go this way. Instead of going straight up the middle without looking to the left or the right, the majority of evangelical Christians are aiming for the corners so they can retain their reputation among men and avoid looking foolish and being ostracized. See, the thing is, there's a desperate need in the church today for men and women of the cloth to be entirely willing to break with tradition and orthodoxy in order for Christianity to advance into the world and not remain wallowing and promoting the ridiculous, the absolutely non-biblical. This will require men and women who are willing to risk their reputation, 
who will stand at the penalty line and they'll kick the ball straight in where it says this is statistically the best way to reach people and forget this man-made traditional stuff of going to the corners. Two more stories in relationship to these concepts and to the show for this year. One about hot dogs and one about stomach ulcers, no connection. The most famous hot dog eating contest in the world occurs in New York City every year. It's called Nathan's Famous Fourth of July Hot Dog Eating Contest. It annually draws up, um, up to a million viewers on ESPN. And up until 2001, the record for the greatest amount of hot dogs eaten, meat and bun, that is what the hot dog is considered in the contest, in 12 minutes of time, 25 and an eighth hot dogs. That's a lot. The rules are these, 12 minutes, I think it's now been moved to 10, meat and bun in any order you want, together, separate, whatever, condiments allowed, why anyone would put condiments on their hot dog in a, in a contest, but that's in it. Beverages of any kind are allowed and in any quantity you want to use them and know what the professional eaters call reversals of fortune, meaning no vomiting up the contents. The long-standing record 25 and an eighth up till 2001, and then in 2001, amidst these giant, heavy, bar-eating guys, comes this dude from Japan. His name is Kobe. He is small, smallish, unassuming, He'd only been in one con eating contest before in Japan, which he won, and his girlfriend signed him up for it. When he got there, one of the other eaters looked at him and said, my, your legs are thinner than my arms. That's what they said to the guy. In his first competition, Kobe walked away the winner of Nathan's international worldwide hot dog eating contest. Did he eat 26 dogs? With the record being 25 and an eighth, no. 30, no. 35, no. 40, no. The standing record, an astounding 25 and an eighth, Kobe ate 50. His words when they said, what do you do? What do you think? How do you feel? His words were, I could have eaten more. For the next six years, Kobe dominated the Coney Island competition and only began to lose when other competitors adopted his unseen, unconventional, uncontested approach to eating hot dogs. And I won't get into it, but essentially I'll just tell you really quickly, he separated the meat from the bun, he broke them in two so he could do this and he would use water mixed with vegetable oil to swallow the bun and just chew. And so he was using two hands instead of the traditional ways, hold one hand and do it. He, he just defied complete, complete tradition and said, I'm going to do it this way. And he blew the records away. The point, what were longstanding traditional approaches to consuming hot dogs, Kobe ignored them. And in breaking the rules, established a method that took longstanding records and doubled them. I'm not going to, again, go into everything. Just understand that it took a slight of build 
an analytically minded individual who had the guts to not only say no to traditional approaches to doing it, but he was also willing to employ approaches that had never been employed before. Yesterday, I got uh, uh, I had a conversation from a, with a good friend, and he told me about a Christian leader in this state, a respected Christian leader in the state, who said relative to my person, well, while some of his points may be true, uh, he goes about delivering his information in the wrong way. In other words, eat your hot dogs the way everyone else eats them, Sean. Had Kobe listened to conventional wisdom in the field of eating contest, I am sure that the record for Nathan's uh, 4th of July hot dog eating competition would still be at 25 to 30 hot dogs instead of 65 now. The application to the show, to Christianity, can we make the application? Is it any different? Because we're talking about God, do we have to just consistently go with what has been traditionally said? Could it be anything is wrong in the mix with how we've seen it? Could it be that we have missed it somehow over all these decades of what God has been saying through his word and instead have listened and stood upon the shoulders of men who were filled with all sorts of presuppositional prejudices and illnesses and angers and that we listen to what they have had to say? Could, is it possible that the powers and leaders and maintainers of religion want this order because they can consist and exist in it, I would strongly suggest that until we are worshiping God in spirit and in truth, until we get to the place where denominational platforms are obliterated, until we get to the time when Christian love for all people will prevail, the powers and leaders and maintainers of order are dead wrong. And it's time we ignore what's been taught and implemented and try to approach it in a different way. We're still eating hot dogs here. It's just the method in which we're doing it can be altered. Last true story. To challenge the rules in hot dog eating or to stick your neck out in a soccer match is one thing, but to spit against the wind of tradition in the realms where money and power rule the day, the stakes are much, much higher, and the cost and price for variation much steeper. Look at the history of the human stomach ulcer. By the early 1980s, science, medicine, the pharmaceutical companies stood upon something that was irrefutable when it came to stomach ulcers. They are the result of stress and bad diet. In other words, an overabundance of stomach acid produced by stress and the wrong foods can and could and would cause an ulcer and were, the re, uh, were responsible for all stomach ulcers. With such certainty in mind, the treatment was just as certain. And those in the esteemed medical profession, our gods here upon earth, had a universal response to suffering patients. Calm down, avoid stress, drink milk, Avoid spicy foods and take Xanax or Tagament for your sore tummy. By 1994, the annual tab for treating stomach ulcers in the United States alone, following traditional advice, 
billion dollars. Eight billion dollars. You're talking about a machine of an industry just based on stomach ulcers. And the suffering remained for the people who had them pretty much the same. Some alleviation. So go back to 1981 to Australia, a land where people sometimes have more guts to say, I'm going to approach things differently, might. Barry Marshall was a medical resident, and he was looking for a research project. He was in rotation for the gastroenterology department at the Royal Perth Hospital. Long story short, there was a bunch of people with stomach problems, and it was discovered they all had a bacteria in their stomach. Campylobacter was located in each one of their stomachs. Conventional wisdom said this is impossible for two reasons. Campylobacter um, comes from chickens. And it was known, known, known among all the gods of medicine that no bacteria, no campylobacter bacteria from a chicken or anywhere else can exist in the human stomach. That is impossible because the uh, stomach acids would kill it off. So Dr. Marshall, who had learned to debate and question and argue and challenge everything from his own parents, who would, would just go with him whenever he was young and just debate everything in question, he was curious. So he made this his project and discovered quickly that the bacteria was not actually Campylobacter, but is a brand new bacteria called Heliobacter pylori. Culturing it from a large number of people, he then discovered that this unknown bacteria responded to, meaning it died, in the face of tagamet, milk, a less stressful life, no, antibiotics. So Marshall brings in 13 ulcer patients and he discovers what? Heliobacteria pylori in all 13 of them. Hmm, he thought. Have we been wrong all along? Ha. <sighs> so he injected the bacteria into animals. That didn't do anything. They didn't get, seem to respond and get ulcers. The only way to prove a connection between H. pylori and stomach ulcers was to put the bacteria in a human, something that he could not ethically do as a doctor. So after having his own stomach examined and vetted of illness, Dr. Marshall, without telling his wife or colleagues, swallowed a batch of the bacteria that he had cultured from a patient. If he got an ulcer, boom, a connection. If not, then two years of his life researching and probing this was down the drain. So he swallows it. He thought it would take a couple years for an ulcer to develop. Within a week, he was vomiting. Dr. Marshall had an instant stomach ulcer. And against all conventional wisdom and all the studies and all the experts and all their scholars from the past, Stomach ulcers were the result from bacterial infection, and later it was discovered that this bacterial infection also causes stomach cancer. Amazing. But here's the point relative to us and Christianity in the show this year. Dr. Marshall, after swallowing the culture, experienced an enormous backlash, pushback, from almost everyone involved in the medical profession. 
he was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was made fun of, and worst of all, he was ignored, as were his findings. He was mocked for consuming the bacteria into his own person and was considered, in an Australian word, loopy, I guess. Why? At the root of tradition and arrogance and ignorance, and the loudest voice of all, an $8 billion industry built around the suffering of people with stomach ulcers did not want to accept that a little inexpensive antibiotic could cure them. Tradition and power takes a long time to overcome, and even today there are plenty of people who continue to believe that ulcers are the result of stress and spicy food. But almost any medical doctor worth his salt knows, or her salt, knows that it can be easily treated with cheap antibiotics and that people who used to suffer a lifetime of pain can now be cured within days with this inexpensive approach. The lesson and application to what we are doing, H. pylori didn't appear out of nowhere. It suddenly didn't pop up on the human scene. It had been in the stomachs well before the discovery of the microscope. H. pylori has probably been in the stomach of people since Adam and Eve in the fall. But traditional wisdom and the well-established orthodoxy to treat ulcers by the experts was so entrenched in the minds of everyone involved, scientists and researchers and medical professionals ignored the pylori's existence. What Marshall discovered not only led to the healing of millions of suffering souls, but opened the eyes of research science to realize that the human stomach is full of all kinds of bacteria, which led to all sorts of exciting and new information about the digestive system and how to help us along, something that would not be if the standard conventional traditional approach to stomach ulcers was adhered to and kept holy and sacred. Do you know what research scientists did in the face of bacteria? They saw it when they would examine uh, stomachs prior to uh, uh, Marshall's discovery. They would wash the bacteria away so they could get down to the stomach cells and really see what was going on. They were so blinded by the standard approach that they said, let's get rid of all this weird stuff, these squiggly things. And let's just get to the cells to see if we can determine what's wrong. So they discovered erosion in the cells, and they said, you got to stop being so stressed. You've got to start drinking milk and maybe Tagament for $6.99 a case. You know, so what it was was they ignored the fact right in front of their noses. They saw what they want to saw. <laughs> they saw what they wanted to see. <laughs> Listen, if all of these factors, fear of shame and embarrassment, as in the penalty shooter in soccer, presuppositional opinions from the religious right, why brown M&Ms are excluded from the bowl, established and conventional methods of eating hot dogs, in the case of Kobe, and pushback from large institutional powers to accept things as they have been blind people for decades and exist in essentially every arena on earth, all of these factors, why wouldn't this be the case for our understanding and approaching and our application to what has been known as Christianity?
am I so far off to believe that the things that we have said are true about the Bible have not been seen in the light that they should? Am I so wrong? Am I really just a loopy, a loony like Dr. Marshall? Or, or are we on to something to try to get the direction that Christianity has gone? And can we say, let's explore this more openly? Certainly going to be wrong. I'm sure Wallace has been wrong. I'm sure Marshall has been wrong. I'm sure all these people have been wrong. But can we at least open this up to say, can we look at this in a different way? I guarantee you there's no difference. Not one bit of difference between organized institutional Christianity and the powers that manipulate and move it and propose it and, and kill other thought, same as the medical profession, same as political movements, same as everything else. It's all the same. This is what the show is going to be about this year. Shooting down the middle. Avoiding presuppositional judgments. Breaking from traditional methods that are heralded by the record setters of the past. Spitting in the face of institutional positions and powers and their money and their self-interest to help you, to help ourselves worship God in spirit and in truth. Next week, we're going to begin with a clear, fearless, reasonable examination of the Bible. Any calls? Well, I'm tired. And it's the end of the year, and the family's up from California, and there's food waiting to be eaten. My H. pylori is in check, and I think I am going to end the show. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. The storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the 